Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys all doing? Pretty good today? Yes. I'm glad to hear that. I'm Robert Kelly, one of the pastors here at the church. I'm so glad that you have uh, joined us for worship and uh, the continuation of our studies on uh, the nature of God. That's what we've been doing uh, here for a couple of weeks and uh, we'll continue for a little while as well, talking about the nature of God. So years ago, I was debating with uh, a guy about God. We were talking about the Christian God. He didn't believe in him, and I did, and so we were debating. And uh, he came up with what I'm sure uh, he, he thought was a really novel argument. And he said, uh, so what if at the end of your life you die and you go and stand before this God and you find out it's all been one big, sick, twisted joke? I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, what happens if you stand before this God? And he says to you, you know, all of it was a, was a gag. I, I just, I, I played a sick joke on all of you. The whole Jesus thing was a farce. The cross was meaningless. You actually have no hope and you've spent your whole life believing in this very fake thing. <laughs> you know, because that would be the evil laugh of the evil God. And so... And, and so uh, this, this guy, he really thought he sort of like, you know, he'd gotten this incredibly powerful point across. And I said, well, actually, you know, if, if there was this, you know, sinister evil deity and that's what happened, it, it actually wouldn't change much about me in my response. He's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if there's a big evil God who's about to throw me into hell, I'm, I'm going to beg for mercy, which is pretty much what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm pleading with God for mercy. It's just that his mercy is found in Christ. And if, you know, he has no mercy, it doesn't change anything for me. I mean, I'm just going to go up there saying, I throw myself wholly at your sovereign power as God. I said, but now it doesn't change anything for, for me, <laughs> but it certainly changes things for you. Because if, if you're right, then of course, both of us end up at the whim of this evil God. But if I'm right, You've rejected the loving God's offer of salvation found in Christ alone. See, we were actually talking about the very nature of God. And for whatever reason, for his own reasons, I guess, he was unwilling to really examine what the nature of God would really be like. Who is God? What is God actually like? And we, we began last week by exploring those two great truths. One is that God was strong. He was, he's powerful. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's Lord. He's the powerful creator of everything. That's the one great truth. And the second great truth was even though he is sovereign and above everything and all-powerful, he is also infinitely good. He is strong and he is 
good. And I continue to go back to these two great truths over and over and over again in my own journey with God. And today, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into his very nature, see what it is that we can learn about him. So when you hear me say, we're going to talk theology a bit today, we're going to discuss the Trinity. We're going to discuss the Trinity. How does that make you feel? Like, do you think to yourself, oh, nice, good. I think I remember talking about that in CCD. Um, You know, like, you kind of go back to that day, maybe. And some of you are like, well, you know, I think I've heard about it. I mean, I was kind of really, I'm excited because I was really hoping for a theological discussion about a, a confusing enigma of a doctrine that's shrouded in mystery. That's what I was really hoping for this morning. So let's... Well, you know, let's jump right in and, and do that. And others are like, well, you know, I guess, you know, it's kind of how I was feeling a little bit about it was, well, it's theology, it's the Bible, you sort of should talk about the Trinity, at least occasionally, because, you know, it's there. And for a very long time, I have imagined the doctrine of the Trinity as really nothing more than a theological curiosity, even in, even in oddity. You know, it was... It was the kind of a thing that we would take on faith because we're Christians. But it's, you know, it's just one of those things. It's one of those doctrines. In fact, I'd, I'd rather not really talk about it, and I'd rather not, you know, like, have to defend it. You know, when your doorbell rings and a Jehovah's Witness is there, and you invite them in, you have a cup of coffee, and they're like, so how, how can you defend the doctrine of the Trinity? You're like, oh, brother, here we go. So, you know, now I've got to find some book somewhere, and we've got to talk about it because it's the doctrine that we don't really want to think much about or talk about. And you come along and you start to read some of the great thinkers, some of the great Christian theologians and preachers of the past, and their, their idea about the Trinity seems so much more robust than ours. Like, for instance, Jonathan Edwards, considered one of the greatest American theologians, he said, God appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me have exalting thoughts of God that he subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He appeared glorious because of the doctrine of the Trinity? It's not the natural flow of my thinking. Karl Barth, the triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. If we deny this, we have a God without radiance, without joy, without humor. (laughs) Really? All of that tied up in the Trinity? Charles Spurgeon, he said it so well. A gospel without the Trinity, it is a pyramid built upon its apex. A gospel without the Trinity, it is a rope of sand that cannot hold together. A gospel without the Trinity, then indeed Satan can overturn it. But give me a gospel with the Trinity, and the might of hell cannot prevail against it. No man can any more overthrow it than a bubble could split a rock or a feather break in halves a mountain. Get the thought of the three persons and you have the marrow of all divinity. Only know the Father and know the Son and know the Holy Ghost to be one and all things will appear clear. This is the golden key to the secrets of nature. This is the silken clue of the labyrinths of mystery. And he who understands this will soon understand as much as mortals ever can know. Wow. So nowadays... If you want to shoot to the very top of the bestseller lists, you, got to, you can write a book that simply dislodges any claim that God might have on the human creature. Write a book on how come God is dead and surely it will get published and people will buy it and you'll be doing the, the, the circuit of, of interviews. 
because people are quick to jettison the human need for God. We actually lean toward wanting to reject it. We want to keep God at arm's length. But sometimes I just, you have to start to wonder, are, are the people who are fleeing from God, or even our own tendency to keep him at arm's length, are we rejecting him with the full knowledge of who we're rejecting? Or are we rejecting a parody of an image of God? You know, one author, he described the false conception of God that is out there in many people's minds, describing God as the loveless dictator in the sky. He's the loveless dictator in the... Yes, of course people are rejecting him. Of course we're fleeing from him. Of course we try to keep him at arm's length. You have to wonder if, if in doing that, are we actually rejecting the true God? We've never really gotten to know him. And we start to delve into this idea, this doctrine of God, and we start to see that the best of creation and the hope of humanity is linked to the nature of God. So this morning, we're going to meditate for a little while on this triune nature of God. And we're going to try to delve deeper into the beauty of the love that's reflected in it. So God is Trinity. God is Trinity. That's the key idea. That we're, that we're going after. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the word itself, of course, does not show up in the Bible. Anyone who's ever studied it realizes this. The word Trinity doesn't show up. However, the teachings are gleaned from all over the scriptures. Dozens and dozens of Bible verses that uh, reference or indicate this idea of a triune God. And we believe in the Trinity because the Bible teaches the Trinity. That's largely why it is that we come to understand the doctrine, because we find it on the pages of the Bible, because we trust the Bible, so we take it on faith, because at first, it just really doesn't make much sense. You know, the, how are they related? How does it make sense to, to explain this three-in-oneness? It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, so we say, so we think. We've been, came across, and uh, we're doing this New City Catechism thing. I hope all of you are participating. It's a daily reading plan. And uh, so we've had a lot of readings about the Trinity already. You've been reading all sorts of scriptures. But we also had the question, question three, is how many persons are there in God? And of course, the answer to this catechism question, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And if you were to kind of take this idea of the Trinity, you could really kind of break it down into three affirmations, three key affirmations. There is only one God, and that's important for us to recognize. Christians don't believe in three different gods, and we don't worship three gods. We have one God. The scriptures are clear about that. We also know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, those are the three persons of the Godhead, they are fully and eternally God. So they have always existed. One didn't create the others. Each of them are fully deity. Each in their own right are God. But the third affirmation tells us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. So they're not the same. And so this is how we largely try to explain this idea. We don't really even try to explain it. We just sort of state what the Bible seems to teach us about it. They're distinct persons, three personalities, 
that make up what we call now the one Godhead. One God in three persons. Now, we often will try analogies, right? And so everyone tries to come up with their favorite analogy to explain the Trinity. And the truth of the matter is I've never yet found an analogy that does not fail and lead us into heresy. So, you know, you start with like, you know, you got the clover. It's a three-leaf clover. There's like a one leaf and the second leaf and the third leaf. The three together are one clover. No, because you cut off one leaf, it's no longer a three-leaf clover. It doesn't really work like this. Oh, it's an egg. You know, you've got the shell, and you've got the white, and you've got the yolk, and each one together makes the one egg, except the shell isn't actually an egg all by itself, where, you know, Jesus is, in fact, deity all by himself, so that doesn't... The three phases of water. You know, you've got, you've got it as liquid, you have it as gas, you have it as a solid. There's the three phases, except that's a modalist kind of a view because they don't exist all together at the same time. And so it's not that God is father one day and son the next day in spirit. He's all three all the time. So what about like me? You know, I'm a man, so that makes me, as a man, I can be the, a father to my children. I could be the husband, you know, to my wife, and I could be the son to my parents. And so, but, but you see, again, I'm one with three different roles. This isn't what the Trinity teaches. So whenever you get into the analogies, you're usually going into heresy. Um, and so we, just, we try them, we try to use it to explain it, but the, but the fact of the matter is none really capture what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, though we might try. So there you go. There's your orthodox biblical understanding of God as Trinity. You can check that box. There we go. All good. We got the Trinity, got the Trinity understood and sort of locked down. And now it can rest as a straightforward yet rather cold doctrine that we are to believe. But what again, what if it is far more than this cold doctrine? What if in fact it has layers of subtlety and beauty in it? And what if it, it really does start to shed a rather spectacular light on the essence of our Christian faith? Because what we find in the scriptures isn't this sort of cold discussion of the Trinity. What we have is a trinity that's explained in the context of relationships. Just kind of get the vibe of this text. We're going to read John 14. John 14, we're going to be starting in verse 8. And just think in terms of the relational sorts of ideas that are going on between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is only one example. Uh, again, there are dozens of examples like this that we've been reading and that we could pull out today, but I'm not, I'm just going to focus on a couple of different ideas. John 14, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. 
the world, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now jump down to verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all these things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Time and again, when you're going through the scriptures and you come across a reference to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and you'll see how they relate together, you start to understand that the Bible speaks about them in terms of relationship, even the, the words used. This is the Father and the Son. Why use this kind of language to help us understand the nature of God? See, this is, this is pointing to the idea, this, this triune doctrine, it's about relationship. It's about a connection. It's about, of course, love. C.S. Lewis, he phrases it like this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. He was not love. See, the Trinity is the eternal love in God. It's the love that's found in the Godhead. It's this eternal dance, as some have called it, that goes on for all of time with the Father and the Son and the Spirit interacting in relationship with each other. You know, this primary image is of the Son of God who's loved by the Father. And then, of course, you have this eternal Father who is adored by the Son. That's the picture the scriptures try to paint for us over and over again. The Son is the delight and the joy of the Father, as it ought to be. This is the way, when we see that in the world, we say, this is the way it ought to be. Why ought it to be so? Because it's in the very nature of God. That's who he is. When you see the Spirit show up, the Spirit will often help us understand who God the Father is. And in that way, we become more Christ-like. We become more Son-like. When the Spirit comes in and helps us become more and more like Christ, then the Father can look upon us as his precious Son. So we, we experience the love of the Father because of the work that the Spirit is doing in us. You see, so even the Spirit's role in this is to enhance this family-connecting love. If we grasp what it means for God to be a trinity, this is a quote from uh, a man named Michael Reeves. Michael, uh, Michael Reeves, he wrote this amazing book um, on this whole idea. He said, for it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. At his very nature, he is a God of relationship. Now, our own experience of God's love. So that could just exist in eternity. It can exist in the nature of God apart from the human experience. But when Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth and he begins to interact with us, he opens up a whole new possibility for us when it comes to this eternal love of God. 
he tells us that our experience of God's love is actually based upon the eternal love that God has for the Son. So our experience of God's love is related to that eternal love. Now, who would, would say that they want to be loved by God here? Like, who of us would say, you know what, actually, I think I'll take a pass on God's love. You know, I'm not really, I'm not really feeling it, don't really want it, don't really need it. Like, you think he's like what? Like some stalker obsessed with you or something. You're like, you know what, I'd rather he didn't pay any attention. I'd rather he not, like, who, who in their right mind, if there's any possibility that, that a divine being exists, would say, I don't really want God's love. We would be, you'd be an idiot. You'd be a fool. It would make no sense. You might not feel worthy of his love. That's something totally different. You may feel like he could never love you because, you know, your family or others have continually made love contingent upon your performance. That, that's a totally different thing. I'm saying if you could get it, who would bypass it? Who would say, oh, no, thanks, not for me? And then look what he says, what Jesus tells us in John 17. This is Jesus in conversation with the Father. He says, I, this is Jesus, I in them, that's you, I in them, and you, the Father, in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, the Son is saying, I have forever experienced the love of the Father. And that love that he has for Jesus is the same love that he will have for you and for me. The love that we get from God is based upon, it's rooted in this love that exists in the Trinity. You could go so far as to say that there is love in the creation itself because there is love in the Godhead. The creation reflects the nature of the triune God. He designed it out of his nature. You could even reverse it for a moment if you wanted to. You could imagine a solitary God for just a few disturbing moments. You could think about what, you know, the Greeks or the Romans, uh, how they would describe their gods, right? So what happens when you get to the, the Greek uh, collection of gods and they, you start learning about who they are and what does Zeus do and what does this guy do and what does that guy and what is, you know, what, what is the, the, you know, this guy, he's got the domain of the ocean, Poseidon, this guy's got the domain of speed and this guy, has, it's like all of these different little segmented individual gods. And what do we find out about them? They end up being petty, spiteful, self-centered, in competition with each other. That's a natural result of a singular God. Or you might ask yourself, what would it be like if he were just a loner? You know, anytime you're reading a news article and it says, and so-and-so was a, described by his friends and family as a loner. When does that article ever end well? <laughs> right? I mean, are you, right? It's described as a loner. So now you can imagine if you had a loner God so for all of eternity, before creation, there is an eternally solitary being who has managed to get through all of eternity without love. Michael Reeves, again, 
He quotes it like this. If for eternity God has only himself to consider, then surely self-obsession would be the highest form of God-likeness. But self-love and self-obsession are the very antithesis of this other-centered God. This God wouldn't have love at his core. He wouldn't have love at his core. He would have self-obsession. At his core, his existence, anything that came out after his solitary existence would be secondary. The creation, love would be secondary to this God, not primary. It would be a result of creation, not a cause for it. Tim Keller, he explains it a little bit in a, in a great One of the more powerful arguments I have in talking to um, secular people about the Trinity. I mean, the, a- <laughs> um, the average secular person says, hey, Islam, Judaism, I, I, okay, maybe. But the Trinity, it just doesn't make any sense. And Augustine's great point is you couldn't really say God is love except about a triune God. Because if you have an impersonal God, obviously, then there's, if you're, you have an Eastern view of God as impersonal, that's, it's obviously that kind of God is not a God of love. Uh, but even a unipersonal God wouldn't be loving until that God created some other beings. Because love, you need another being to have love, which means power came before love. That is, a unipersonal God using his power creates a, a, a race of beings, and now he has their love and he loves them. So love comes in later, powers before love. And Augustine says, which of course figures, that figures with paganism. The whole idea that basically uh, um, what life's really about is power. Uh, no, if, if God is tri-personal, then he was love and community from all eternity. And out, of course, as Edward says, it's out of that love he decided to create a race of beings to share that love and that glory. So love comes first, and it's the basis for power, which has enormous implications for, for what's actually important in human life. So Augustine is saying, if you really think love is the meaning of the universe, and if you really think love is, is at the heart of the universe, you have to believe in a triune God. If you don't believe in a triune God, love is peripheral, comes along later. I found that as an apologetic argument. I'm saying, look, I'm not proving that God exists, but if you think love's important, if you think it's more important, relationships is more important than accruing wealth and power, this is the kind of God that is, gives you a basis for believing that and actually gives you a basis for your intuitions. So some takeaways for us as we try to wrap our hearts and our minds around this. Unity is a key idea here. Unity in diversity now becomes grounded in the very nature of God. His existence is unity in the midst of diversity. Father, Son, and Spirit, different yet one. And I think this idea of unity is so important to us, right? Because it's, it's actually what, I mean, we, we talk about it a lot, not just us, but the society talks about unity as, you know, this important value. And yet even those who talk about unity are usually using it in such a way as to divide us. And, and so this idea of unity and the diversity that can exist within unity is so essential. I, um, I, I've told a couple of you this already, but I've gotten sucked into this bottomless pit of Pinterest lately. And so it's a little embarrassing to admit, 
but confession is good for the soul. So, and, and I don't do it the way that, I don't use it the way a lot of you use it. Like, you know, if people say, oh, I have this wedding and I need to plan the wedding and I need to have like great ideas to do something creative, so I'll go look up creative wedding ideas. That's not how I use it. I'm not actually using it for any projects. I just see what's popular in the world. And that means I could be looking at any sort of random collection of, of pins, right? And they can be just the most, like, cool gadgets and, and funny cat pictures and, like, you know, cool tattoo art and, you know, like, new motorcycles. Like, I could be looking at all of these things in one thing because this is what's popular right now. So anyway, one of the threads that I stumbled across, it was pictures of animals of different species hanging out together. All right? So here, here are a couple of these awesome... Not, uh, this is so cute, right? Come on, you'd have to be hard-hearted, right? Look at that, a cheetah and a deer, like, oh, look, they're so friendly. Oh, come on, right? Look. <laughs> He's a snack. Um, but, you know, <laughs> like, you see all of these things, and you're like, oh, that's so cute. Look, the unity that we could have. This is when the lion lays down with the lamb, you know. There's unity in the diversity that's, you know, out there in the world, and they're very, very cute. And if you don't get cry a little bit, then you're, you have no heart because um, these are just so darn cute. Although I have to tell you, that dog with the bear, he sort of looked like, this is not going to end well for me. <laughs> the bear was like, oh, this is so nice. The dog's like, this is not nice. This is a bear hug. Um, but, you know, I think the doctrine of the Trinity actually gives us a rationale for the beauty that is inherent when there is unity in the midst of our diversity. You know, when different notes come together, the diversity of notes come together, we create the wonder of music. When you take a whole lot of different colors and textures and you put them together in a skilled way on a canvas, you get a beautiful piece of art. It's the diversity of the colors that make the unity more beautiful than if it had simply been done in one color. You think about the relationships between when men and women can be unified, treating each other with respect and with dignity. The unity, the diversity in one, it's when humanity shines. You think about the racial differences, blacks and whites and Asians and browns and all together mixed up. You come together in love, unity in diversity. And when we do that, we actually reflect the very nature of God because he is a triune God. I think one of the most beautiful things about living here in New York is the diversity. It's the diversity that we get to participate in. You know, and I think as individuals, we get to actually now figure out how to leverage this in our lives. We can actually extend the connective tissue between different kinds of people, racial. We have our, our socioeconomic differences. We have our status differences. And we can create, we can extend the connective tissue that exists all around us, and we can strengthen it in the name of Christ. And when we do that, we actually reflect the very nature of God. There's a reason that when it happens and when we see it, it's inherently beautiful. I've had some friends who have come out to the church, and they looked out, and they were like, man, that is one diverse church. We're actually more diverse here at Beacon than our surrounding community is. You know, less than half of the church is currently white, you know, which started out as almost an entirely white, nearly Italian church. 
you know, 11 years ago. We had that international di dinner. I'm like, this is so, like, the diversity is so great. And they're like, this church is, it's so diverse. And it's, there's, there's, something, there's something inherently beautiful about that. And it's true. It's the reflection of the nature of God. And we've been invited into a family. This is a key idea, family. This triune God that we have is overflowing in love. Overflowing in love. Father, Son, and Spirit finding everlasting delight and inviting us into that delight. And maybe you've had a lousy family life. Maybe you've had a terrible experience growing up. But you see, what we're trying to create here is this. It's a spiritual family knit together in, in sacrificial love, learning how to delight in each other and to defer to each other, practicing love. And you do this and you reflect the nature of God. And then worship. You know, you become what you worship. And if your conception of God is this one-dimensional, solitary God, then you're going to be shaped by that reality. That's who you will become. And if you worship a powerful judge of the world, then you'll be shaped by that. And always looking for him to come down heavy when you screw up or to honor you when you, when you obey him properly. If you worship a cold and a distant God, it'll impact who you are. But imagine what we would look like as a church and what our communities would look like if we worship the one triune God who forever exists in the delight of relationships and sacrificial love. You know, and in a few moments, we're going to get to, we're going to be worshiping again. We're going to be focusing on this thought. We're going to be going to the Lord's table. And we have to remember that we also get out of the Trinity the atonement, the sacrifice of God on our behalf. The Father wanted it so. The Son yielded his life for us. The Spirit applies the salvation work to, to our souls. We get the atonement, our sacri the sacrifice of Christ, our salvation, this table, because of the Trinity. No one but God participated in our atonement. It was all his. All of the plan, all of the suffering, all of the sacrifice of the atonement was God's because of the Trinity. And we capture this idea a little bit in Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All the fullness dwelling in Christ, the deity there, the atonement made through his sacrifice. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and they're going to uh, be leading us in a couple more songs and helping us prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table as we reflect on these fantastic triune truths. And as they do, and as we sort of, you know, think along these lines together, I just want to encourage you guys. You know, for me, the, this idea, this doctrine of the Trinity has for too long been sort of a cold doctrine I've kept at arm's length, rather than worry simply about trying to understand it, rather than try to say, I just can't figure it out three in one, assume for a minute, assume for a while, maybe forever, that we simply cannot understand it, that we can accept it as a tenant of our faith, but rather push past that 
and get at the heart of why the triune nature of God matters for us today. Let's do that as we continue to worship. Would you stand as we worship? <laughs>